Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, as usual, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in a right relationship with the Lord. If you've been sitting there looking at your iPad or your iPhone and reading Bloomberg or Drudge Report or some of these other things and gotten out of fellowship, see, I know you all pretty well, then you need to make sure that you get back in fellowship. All right, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. We come to you this evening, we recognize that we're living in incredibly chaotic times. We have a lack of leadership from the upper levels of, of government all the way down to the bottom. We have uh, people in leadership who are more concerned about maintaining their power and their privilege than they are about uh, serving the people and serving the constitution of this nation. We have people who have turned a blind eye to the fact that we have an enemy that has declared war against us, and though not all Muslims have declared war, the enemy that has declared war are those who all hold to the Islamic religion, which is not just a religion, but is an ide- a political ideology as well. Father, by not being willing, not having the guts to identify an enemy, we leave ourselves open to greater attack. And when we can't identify a problem, you can't solve the problem. And all you have is false solutions. And this is just another form of idolatry. It's another form of arrogance. And, Father, we pray that you would protect this nation, that you would give us leaders who would have the courage to stand up and speak the truth and have the wisdom to know how to approach a resolution of the problem. Father, we pray above all that we as believers might be a light to others, that we might be willing to stand firm and to communicate the gospel to those who are searching for truth, those who question whether there is truth, and those who are just wandering around in the darkness. For the scripture says we are to shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Give us the courage to do that. And Father, because we have your word We can understand truth, for in the Psalms we read that it is in your light that we see light. And may we come to understand your your, your truth and be more and more enlightened uh, each time we study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're studying in 1 Peter. And since a major theme in 1 Peter has to do with suffering, one of the things I've been doing is taking a look at different examples. Many of these come out of the period of the Reformation, especially in England, but I'll be getting to some others as well. Examples of Christians that have faced 
and endured and suffered through some pretty uh, intense, uh, intense persecution, hostility, torture, things of that nature. Three names that were well known in Scotland in the 1500s and 1600s were the names of Hamilton, the names of uh, John Knox, and the name of Weishart. We'll look at each one of these as we go through this. Patrick Hamilton's the one I'm going to talk about tonight. He was born in 1504. Now let's contextualize that just a little bit. This is a period of the greatest... Uh, the greatest debauchery and the greatest perversion and the greatest corruption in the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not picking on Roman Catholics. It's a historical reality. And it was even in the, the context of the early 1500s, you had a massive reform movement that developed within the church. It was part of a counter-reformation movement that was called the Jesuits, and that began in the 1520s. So we're in 1504. We're just about... Twelve years after the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus or the Western Hemisphere, when this man, Peter Hamilton, is born uh, in Scotland uh, near Glasgow. And as he grew up, which was true in many, many generations and through several centuries in, in, in Scotland and in England, uh, children learned the Bible at the feet of their parents. Their mothers read Bible stories to them and read the Bible to them. And this is probably one of the most significant things any parent can do. It's better than reading anything else, is just to tell them Bible stories over and over again. And uh, as a result of that, this the Word of God dominated and his life. His father wanted a church career for him. Now remember, this is a time as he reached adulthood, he goes through that shift that occurs between uh, the, en- the end of the Roman Catholic dominance and the beginnings, just the very beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, which began October 31st, 1517. Now when Patrick was 13 years old, and he's born in uh, 1504, so that would be 1517. He, his father secured for him his first work at a, at a church. So he's got, it's Roman Catholic because Luther's just beginning to, um, to become known. And actually at the time he didn't want to have anything to do with church work, so he left home and he went to Paris. He went to the Sorbonne at the University of Paris where he heard, uh, where he became a student, and he heard about Luther's protest, and for an entire year, the Sorbonne studied nothing but Luther's writings in order to come to understand what these, what these issues were. He graduated from the Sorbonne in 1520, went back to Scotland to study at the University of St. Andrews, and he eventually joined the, the, um, joined the faculty. The Scottish Parliament at this time condemned Lutheranism as heresy, and so at that time, if you uh, were guilty of heresy, you would be uh, executed because they still had this this uh, unity between the church and the state. So, it, you know, to reject the state religion is an act of treason as well. So, Patrick by this time had adopted Lutheran views. He was. Uh, uh, he had adopted the views of the Reformation, and he immediately began to be sought after 
uh, for arrest. He fled the country, went to Germany, uh, spent time with Luther and other Reformation leaders, and he determined to go back to Scotland in order to preach this gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Crowds, huge crowds, came to hear him, and many were converted. In 1528, he was arrested. They tried and sentenced him to death. And at high noon, on February the 29th of 1528, they led him to, uh, to, out to be hanged. He handed a friend his copy of the Gospels, took off his cap and gown, which were part of his uh, uh, garments as an, as an academician as a, uh, in, the, in the university. The executioner chained him to the post and attempted to set the wood afire, but the wood was damp. The flame did not burn well, and it burned for six hours before he died. When it appeared the fire was at last going to kill him, his last words were, How long, O God, shall darkness cover this kingdom? Those were the men whose deaths lit up England for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it may come a time in our history, in our futures, when we may face something very similar. It's going on in places like Syria and Iraq, and it's happened recently in Egypt and other places in the Middle Middle East. And there is uh, no necessary reason with the fact that Islam has declared war on us, or radical Islam has declared war on us, that this would not happen here as long as we refuse to deny that we have an enemy that seeks our, our destru- destruction. So we're studying about how to endure testing. So I want to go back over some things we covered last time. We're in this three-verse section now as we move through the first chapter where Peter writes, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied, that is the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time uh, what uh, or what what kind of circumstances would might be another way to understand that the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things which angels long to look into. Now, there's a lot that's touched on in these three verses. We have various doctrines that are here, and I need to go back and pick up and develop some of what I began last week. Last week, I was going to just briefly look at uh, a brief summary of inerrancy and infallibility, but through the miracle of our website, I searched, and I realized I really haven't taught a lot or in-depth on... uh, inerrancy and infallibility in a long time, so we need to uh, drill down on that a little bit over the next uh, next couple of weeks. So key words that we see here, as I pointed out last time, is the word salvation. Does that refer to eternal deliverance from the lake of fire? Is that talking about deliverance from trials and testing in the here and now, surviving them, 
being delivered from them so that we can move on to the next. And as I pointed out last time, that's the context. It's not talking about future deliverance from the lake of fire, but of deliverance in time. So of this deliverance would be a better translation. The prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Now, as we look at this, we see at the end of verse 11, this emphasis on the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. Now, that is really an important phrase because as we go through this section down through verse 12, we're still in the introduction to this epistle, and what any good writer does in his introduction is to do what? To introduce that which he is going to be talking about. And what we're being introduced to from verse uh, 6 all the way down to this to, to verse 12 is this topic related to suffering and how to survive suffering and adversity in this life. And it's connected here to glory. So the focal point here isn't on messianic prophecies related to Christ's sufferings on the cross. That's not ignored, but it's more than that. It's a much more robust concept. It's focusing on the fact that what the Bible emphasizes about Christ is that his suffering would be followed by glorification. And the focal point, is, we'll see, is going to be on glorification. And this whole issue of suffering leading to glorification is what angels desire to look into. This is what is such something that they... Uh, don't understand from their own experience. So I pointed out last time that this deliverance, of, of, this is about this deliverance from temporal testing, which brought glory to God. Uh, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. The Spirit of Christ testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. Those two things have to be understood. It's, it's a deep connection grammatically. So just in terms of review, uh, this salvation, as I pointed out, is, is a phase two salvation. So just as a reminder, we have three phases of salvation, three stages. Somebody called them three tenses of salvation. We're saved when we trust in Christ in a moment in time. Justification, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two, it, we're saved from the pre, uh, power of sin. Phase three, we're saved from the presence of sin. And Peter is writing about this deliverance from trials in our spiritual life. Now, what we see, we get an insight into in the, these three verses is how the prophets function in relation to the revelation that God gave them. And the more I thought about this during this, this last week, this is just remarkable. It's an important part of bibliology. Bibliology is that branch of systematic theology that studies the nature and the history of the text of the Bible. And so part of bibliology looks at the origin of the Bible, the origin in terms of divine inspiration and inerrancy, as God spoke and revealed his will and his message through to and through the prophets. But they did not always understand or fully grasp all that they wrote. They were just communicators of a message, and as they looked at that message, they uh they they struggled to grasp all of its all of its meaning so they're investigating the meaning of the passage itself and that's what these two words are focused on ex exeteo and ex aranao and if you 
notice both of these words begin with this ek, and that is a the Greek preposition ek, which means out of, and it emphasizes it's like exegesis, getting something out of the scripture. It has that same prefix, and what this is emphasizing is that they're they're in, it's a, it just intensifies the meaning of those words is that they're really investigating, studying, analyzing, thinking, meditating to figure out all that they can get out of what's been revealed to them so that they can understand it. And they've talked about the grace that would come to them. And I pointed out last time that there's several different categories of grace. There's common grace, there's saving grace, there's uh, uh, sanctifying grace, there's dying grace, and there's other categories of grace, but those are the main ones. And what they're examining is the grace that would come to you, and that, in context, is the grace to survive testing and trials, whatever that may be, whether it has to do with your own emotions, your own psychology, your own background, your whatever's going on between your ears and what influenced that in your background, to, to external things. There are three enemies we talk about in the spiritual life, right? We talk about the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, although the order should be the devil, the world, and the flesh. But the devil and the world are outside enemies. The flesh is the inside enemy that constantly seeks to influence us to thinking that it's really a good idea to do it our way rather than God's way. And we think, yeah, that sounds really good. Uh, we're just so inclined to follow the flesh that it, it's like it, we're, we're three miles down the road before we realize, I did it again. You know, it's like when you're on a diet and all of a sudden you sit down and you start eating a dessert and on the way home you go, I really shouldn't have done that. It, it, it's our inclination. It's our habit that, that we've just done it, done it so much. So they're prophesying of how God's grace supplies us with what we need to survive and be delivered uh, from these trials. Now, verse 11 goes on to, again, talk about they're searching. uh, I'll just put it up, go to the next slide. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. A couple of things I wanted to go back over in this verse. First of all, this this word searching, the first word, is the root verb of ex aeronao that we saw back in verse 10. So it, it's just reinforcing their investigation, their examination of what has been given them. So here you have a prophet. And what happens in, in terms of the mechanics is that God reveals to him either internally through a, through a dream or externally uh, or through a vision, but somehow or maybe audibly God communicates something to him and he writes it down. And we, we know that what he writes down is, is overseen by God the Holy Spirit so that it's free from error. He doesn't obliterate the personality of the prophet. Now in a few cases, what they write is is like dictation, but inspiration is not a dictation theory. So what we see is that, for example, the Mosaic Law, that's dictation. God wrote it with his fingers. But in other cases, the, the God is allowing the author to write in terms of his own personality, his own background, his own strengths, weaknesses. All of that comes through his own, his own experiences. But... God the Holy Spirit oversees the process so that it's it's going to be free from error. 
<coughs> so they get this, they write it down, and then they look at it. What did God tell me? Hmm, that's really interesting. What does that mean? And so they start thinking through. They start, they, they know other passages from Torah. They start trying to put these things together to figure out what they are. That's that examination. Now, the next thing I pointed out was this. You have two words, searching what. This is the New King James. What or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was, who was in them was indicating. So we, this is an indication that in reference to inspiration, they are uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This isn't the same indwelling as the New Testament. I think this is the first time I've seen an indication of an indwelling. It's not an external thing, but it's it's a temporary uh, indwelling or filling. It might be comparable to what the New Testament refers to with the term plimplami. Because that's a word that's often used, not plerao, which is the word that's used to describe be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. We quote that all the time, again and again. Most people probably have that memorized by this point. But a related word is pimplami. But pimplami always shows up when when the Holy Spirit filled Mary. And then you have the Magnificat of Mary. And the Holy Spirit fills Peter in Acts 2. And then you have Peter's sermon. And then later on, it's Paul. And, and, and this thing, this happens several times in scripture where you have the use of this word pimplami and then they speak. And I think that that's describing a specific kind of, of indwelling for the purpose of revelation that occurs with authors, the authors of scripture. So the Spirit of Christ is in them and he's t- indicating certain things, but this phrase, Searching what or what manner of time is what I have in these two blocks over here on the slide is into what, and that's the Greek word ace, which means directed toward something, ace tina, which is a, uh, a pronoun, into to what, or it could be into who, or it could be as a, a bedag, the Greek lexicon suggests it could be what sort of. So it's searching what sort of, and then the next phrase is different terminology, into what time or it indicates what kind of or what manner of time. So what, what's going on here is they're looking at these messianic prophecies that he's going to suffer and he's going to be glorified, and they're asking the question, what are the circumstances going to be when this, when the God-man comes? What are the circumstances going to be when you have this, this God-man uh, savior that's on the earth, what's that going to be like? And what is the, how does he handle this suffering that's going to come? I mean, they're, they're thinking through these questions. That's what Peter is saying. And so they're, they're not, this isn't a passage that is, though it's often used to say, see, they're trying to figure out when the Messiah would come. It's much more profound than that. They have understood roughly when the Messiah is coming, they're trying to figure out how this works, that you have a God-man who's going to go through suffering and what those circumstances are going to be like and how God's going to sustain him. That's what they're trying to figure out. Now, they've got limitations on them in the Old Testament, but Peter is saying that's what they were, they were working at, is trying to figure out what that time, when it was going to be and what it was going to be like. So, again, verse 11 talks about the Spirit of Christ was, in, was indicating something, de lao. That is related to inspiration. This Holy Spirit is trying to te- is instructing them, teaching them, 
trying to reveal or explain things, and they're trying to figure it out. Don't get this idea. I think we often do this, and I understand why. As we figure, well, the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. They really understood it just instantly. But what this verse is saying is, no, they didn't grasp it instantly. They wrote it down, then they had to figure it out. And the second word, pra martyrami, indicates that this was indeed genuine prophecy that was testified uh, beforehand. Then we get to these two words, pathema and doxa. Doxa is glory, pathema is suffering. And these are the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings related to Christ, and the glories that would follow. And you can't separate these. They're linked by a conjunction grammatically, but the issue here is suffering followed by glory. That's what we see all the way through First Peter. And I want to point this out to you uh, just, just a little bit. Wait a minute. It would help if I had my Bible. I don't always use my Bible. I print out all the verses in my notes. But I wanted, I wanted to run through this a little bit and give you a little bit of a rundown and look at these verses that are listed here in First Peter related to Christ and suffering and glory. Okay? Here are the verses. Just look at this first chapter. There's nine, uh, ten times in First Peter you have the word glory. One time it's talking about the glory of man, and that's, as I've indicated on this slide, that's in 1 Peter 1.24. But the rest of the time, it just shows that, that, that nine times Peter refers to glory. Notice how they're grouped. They're grouped in, first cha- in the first chapter and in the fourth, fourth and fifth chapter, into the fourth, uh, th- sort of scattered through the fourth chapter and into the fifth chapter. So that tells us something. In, in this first chapter, we've already had one reference back back in one one seven, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation. So there, what do we have? We have the fact that there's testing, various trials, verse 6, that result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is part of the introduction. Then he comes back and connects them again in verse 11, which is the verse we're looking at, the sufferings of Christ and the glories. It says, your suffering will lead to glory just like Christ's suffering led to glory. And if you want to understand how your present-time suffering is going to lead to glory, then you need to pay attention to the example of Jesus Christ. And that's the focal point of Peter's this whole epistle, and it really starts pulling together when you get to First Peter chapter four, starting in verse eleven. Now, uh, as we look at this, as we look at this in verse in verse four, we read, or in chapter four, verse one, we read, "Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh," so we see through this section, we see this emphasis on. Christ, uh, Christ's suffering and what is going on in terms of that of that suffering. We read. Let me look at something here. Okay, let's go. Let's forget for one right now. Let's go back to two twenty one. Two twenty one. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. There's an emphasis on on Christ's suffering. 
Then we go to 223. It says he was reviled, and he did not revile in return when he suffered. He didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges rightly. And then verse 24, it says he bore our sins on the tree, and it's by his stripes, the whipping that he was given with the with the Roman Roman uh, scourge is um, is all, is his suffering. So look at this emphasis on Jesus on, on Jesus suffering. He's he's beaten, he's whipped, he bears our sins, and then we get into chapter four. That's the pattern he sets up to understand suffering and authority. And at the end of chapter four, he gives more examples in chapter three. And then when he comes back to chapter 4, he draws a conclusion from these examples. And in verse 1, he says, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves also with the same mind. See, this is our example, is to look at how Jesus suffered in the flesh. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Why? Why did he cease? He didn't cease from sin because Jesus never sinned. But he's ceasing from living in a sinful world. He's going on to glorification. We'll look at all this when we get to that chapter. But the point I'm saying is 10 through 12 and this suffering and glories that's connected in verse 11 is just introducing the importance of this connection in Jesus as our example. And that's what gets fleshed out and developed when we get into the main body, uh, main body of this epistle. And so 4.1 comes back and says, Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. And then it goes on and develops it a little more in verses 11 uh, down through 16. And that really becomes the heart, the focal point of this whole epistle. He says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified. You ought to circle that word in your Bible. Every time you see the word suffering or glorified, anything or a synonym thereof, you ought to circle it or highlight it in your Bible. In verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. See, there's suffering. The fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. When, when it really gets bad, don't think that somehow God lost control and that this is some strange thing. But rejoice to the extent that what? You partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed. See, there we have suffering is followed by glory. That pattern was set in Christ, and we can uh, we can follow that. Verse 14, he says, if you, uh, um, if you are reproached, for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory, there's that word again, and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemy, but on your part he is glorified. The suffering leads to glorification. And then he says in verse 15, but none of you suffer. There's another use of the word suffer. Don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or busybody in other people's manners. In Second Peter he says, He's going to make the point that when you suffer for doing bad, you deserve it. If you suffer for doing what's right, that is what has value for your spiritual life. Verse 16, he says, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. And then in verse uh, 12, uh, oh, excuse me, then we're moving on. So these are the verses, okay, relating suffering and glorification and the key part is in, in 4, 11 to 12. So, 
All of that just to kind of catch us up and see how all of this fits together. Now, let's go on to verse 12. I'm exegeting my way through these three verses. Then we're going to come back and study the related doctrines that are touched on in this verse. Verse 12, he says, To them it was revealed. Notice the word revealed. What doctrine is that? Inspiration. It's part of bibliology. Categorize it that way. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So this first word, to them, to who? To the apostles. I mean, excuse me, to the prophets. To these Old Testament prophets, it was revealed. Now, I think this... We've, we've already talked about the initial revelation given to them. I think this touches more on illumination here that as they studied, as they examined, as they investigated, it became clear to them what was, what the significance of the text was. I think that God the Holy Spirit is, was helping them to understand to some degree the significance of, of their revelation regarding the sufferings and the glorification of the Messiah. You know, this is a problem, I believe, that, that happened in the history of Judaism is they forgot about the, the suffering Messiah in Isaiah and they focused on the glorious Messiah. Or they divided them between two different Messiahs. But the focus, the thrust of Isaiah is that there's first going to be a suffering Messiah who will justify his people. That's Paul's doctrine of justification by faith in Christ. First, you have a suffering Messiah who dies. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. First, you have a suffering Messiah. Then you have the glorified Messiah. Suffering is followed by glorification. So the the use of uh, apocalypto here, that's where we get our word apocalyptic, it just means revelation or disclosure or an unveiling of something. Uh, to them it was revealed that not to themselves. Okay, what he's saying there is it's revealed to them that the application of what was going on wasn't directed toward them in their generation, but it was in the future. And it was to those who would come after the suffering of the Messiah, that not to themselves but to us, to us, to church-age believers, they are ministering. That what they were writing was really targeted to strengthening those believers who came after the suffering of the Messiah. This is the Greek word uh, diakoneo, and the Greek word diakoneo means to serve. That's where you get this idea of a deacon. He serves a congregation. That's the noun form diakonos. Um, and it means to wait on someone, to minister to them, to support them, to aid them, or to help them. So this information that's coming in the Old Testament was designed to strengthen us, to help us, to aid us, as we face suffering that will be followed by glorification. It's interesting, and grammatically it's an imperfect tense verb, which means that they, it was an ongoing action. It wasn't just one time that they revealed something, but it was something that went on and on through the ministry of these these unnamed unnamed prophets. They were ministering to us what? 
the things. What does that describe? The things. This is a uh, plural pronoun from autos that means those things or they are these those things. It's a um, <clears throat> it, it just describes certain uh, certain things, and you get it from the context. And it would refer to the doctrine that develops from understanding the relationship of suffering that is followed by glorification. So to them it was revealed, that is to the Old Testament prophets, they came to understand that that the ultimate application wasn't to themselves, but that they were ministering the things. They were ministering doctrines related to the suffering that would be followed by glorification, which has now been reported. There's the word meaning to announce or to proclaim something, and this is referring to the fact that, that, that they heard the gospel, they heard the Old Testament, the Torah taught, and now they've come to understand this important teaching that, that glorification follows suffering. And then he says that it's now been reported to you, it's now been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel. Now, that's an interesting phrase. It's dia, which indicates the human means by which the information was transmitted, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, and the evangelists. And the verb here, even though it takes, what, what, what do we have here, uh, seven words to translate this in the English, in, 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 into English, it's only a couple of words in the Greek, uh, it's, uh, or three words, it's the, preposition and an article and then the verb evangelizo which means to evangelize so it's now been reported or announced to you through those who evangelized you those who gave you the gospel those who taught you about jesus as the messiah remember he's talking to a primarily jewish background audience they had they had understood passages like isaiah uh, 53, and they had understand passages from Zechariah, passages from Isaiah 7:14, Isaiah uh, 9:6, other passages in the Old Testament that that predicted uh, the first coming of, of the Messiah, and they knew that that fit that fit Jesus. So they've they've heard the good news, and this news was uh, proclaimed to them by, um, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven, they had the Holy Spirit in them who gave them their spiritual gift of apostle or prophet or pastor, teacher, or evangelist, and it was the Holy Spirit that was empowering their proclamation of the gospel. And so we see this predicted by Jesus in John fourteen sixteen in the Upper Room Discourse, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he's giving his final instructions to his disciples before he's arrested, explaining what's going to happen. He's going to get arrested, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be buried. He's told them he would rise from the dead. And then he tells them that, that he's got to leave and go to heaven, and he's going to prepare a place for them, but God's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send to them another comforter, another of the same time. Same kind. In John fourteen sixteen, Jesus said, I, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another, alas in the Greek, meaning another of the same kind, another helper, or uh, he's going to be the comforter. Uh, 
the divine comforter, uh, the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. This is a a prophecy on Jesus' part telling them that the coming of the Holy Spirit will, will be not too far off. And it wouldn't be 40 days later, 50 days later, actually, on the day of Pentecost, they would receive the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So he's, it's a reference to the triune action of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each involved in this. John fifteen twenty six. when the helper comes, whom I will send, see, Jesus sends, from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Now, this is a very important doctrine that was developed in the early church, and it talks about the procession of the Holy Spirit. This is one of those things that divided Eastern Orthodoxy from uh, the Western church and uh, because they disagreed on this, and uh, that, that the Holy Spirit proceeded from both the Father and the Son, not just from the Father but proceeds from the Father and Son and emphasizes the equality of the uh, authority of both Father and Son in the, in the Trinity. John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So again, we see Jesus is involved in the sending, the Father's involved in, in the sending, and both Father and Son send the Holy Spirit who descends upon the church on the day of Pentecost, and that's described in Acts chapter 2. So what have they done? They, they have, um, they, the people, the recipients of the epistle, uh, heard the gospel that was revealed to them by gifted men who were uh, gifted by the Holy Spirit. And it's these things, the things here, which angels desired to look into, is related back to the things here. Now, the first things, that they were ministering the things, what did, that de- what did I say that described? The doctrine related to the sufferings followed by glorification. So this whole concept of how God brings us to glorification through suffering is what the angels desire to look into. They're watching to see how we handle the suffering, because and, and they're watching the whole panorama as it ultimately leads to glorification at the judgment seat of Christ. So this is just the word, the desire here is the word uh, to want something, to desire something, to long for something. Uh, so the angels want to look into this. They're trying to learn. That's the only way they can learn about this because this dynamic didn't take place in the angelic realm. And they desire to look into it, and that's an interesting verb, iparakupta, which means to stoop down and take a long, hard look at something, to really analyze and studying something. So think about this. The next time you go through a little adversity, things are a little difficult. You have to pick up that telephone and call customer service, and that's always a challenge. Just think, there's an angel sitting right there, and he's just looking at you. How are you going to handle this? I'm trying to learn about the grace of God, and I'm watching you. That doesn't seem very gracious what you just called that guy. (laughs) This isn't a good lesson. 
All right, go read the screw tape letters sometime by C.S. Lewis. Okay, this is what's going on. So the focus here is, is, is encouraging us that we are going through a process that Jesus went through, suffering and glorification. This is a pattern that actually goes back into the Old Testament, suffering and glorification. Glorification comes later. We look at everything in such incremental, tiny, tiny segments right here, right now, that we, we have to think, as my mother used to say, beyond the end of our nose, and look at what the long the long game is here. And the long game is glorifying God over the course of our spiritual growth and maturation. And he takes us through these different categories of suffering in order to bring us uh, to maturity. Okay, now we've come to understand the, how this fits within the context. But this passage really has a lot of implications for understanding the doctrine of inerrancy and uh, the doctrine of inspiration. And as I said uh, at the beginning, I haven't taught through all of this in some time, apparently, so I thought it's a good time to review. And one of the reasons that I'm reviewing this, I mentioned it uh, last week, is this article that Dr. Bob Wilkin recently wrote for Grace in Focus. Grace in Focus is a bi-monthly publication that is put out by the uh, Grace Evangelical Society, of which Wilkin is the is the director. And he'd written a previous article that came out. You can go to their website. It's it's faithalone.org, faithalone.org, one word, faithalone.org. In the left-hand column, uh, there's a place where you can pick, uh, click on the um, Grace in Focus journal, and that'll pop up the next screen. And at the top, you'll see the article I'm um, I'm referencing because that's the most recent. Just under that, you'll see the May-June article, which was entitled, Can We Trust New Testament Professors? And I alluded to that at, at some time past. Now, also the last time I mentioned this particular article, but I just wanted to point out a couple of things about this. In the previous article, Can We Trust... Uh, New Testament writers, he was primarily picking on, not picking on, that's not the right word, he was primarily evaluating trends that are going on in contemporary evangelical scholarship related to understanding the Bible, inerrancy, and can we trust it. And and what got him really focused on this was a book review that he, uh, that was actually what he was writing, uh, on a book by Dr. Craig Blomberg, called Can We Still Believe the Bible? What's interesting is I get emails all the time from different people asking questions, and sometime back somebody asked me about Blomberg. And at the time I, re- I was looking, I- I'd been scanning different parts of his commentary on Matthew, but nothing had really red flagged. And that's what happens a lot of times like that. You don't really see certain things that, that stand out that you question. And... Uh, uh, Blomberg is a professor at Denver Seminary, and he's written a book called Can We Still Believe the Bible? And he comes down to what I would call this real s- squishy new position on inerrancy. He would stand up and say he believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, but listen to a couple of things he says. And uh, one of the things I thought that would that y'all would like or eat up or chew up or spit out is that in his introduction, he makes this sentence, this statement, I refuse ever to be suckered back into the view of my young adult years 
when I actually believed that the end of times would play out as Hal Lindsey claimed they would. You know, here's just another guy who's sort of, as Tommy Ice and I have used the phrase for years, here's another guy who said, I was a teenage dispensationalist. You know, like this is a really bad thing, but now I'm a scholar and I've learned so much and I'm, you know, I've moved beyond that. That was just so juvenile. Uh, trouble is, his theology is pretty borderline heretical as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, just quoting from some things that Wilkins says, he talks about how he uh, misrepresented Blomberg a couple of ways because Blomberg was representing other people's opinions, not his own, and that was not clarified by by Wilkin. And also he made some statements about Dr. Daryl Bach, uh, about uh, the article that he had, he had um, critiqued that Daryl Bach had, had or in the article he critiqued some things that Daryl Bach believed, and uh, Daryl Bach is a New Testament research professor at Dallas Seminary, and Bach called him up and objected to uh, several of the things he said. Um, he said, he, uh, Wilkins says, he objected to the implication that the men I cited believed there was nothing at all historical, that's in italics, about the biblical accounts. Wilkins goes on to say, my apology to Bach and the DTS faculty for leaving some readers with a mistaken impression that I was saying they considered the creation account the worldwide flood, Jonah and Job, as pure italics, pure fiction. I should have been clear what I meant it, what I meant, as I shall now explain, is they do not consider all of these accounts to be literal history. And then goes on and he says what many of the DTS professors believe, and these are men who are not in the Bible X department. Bible, that's shorthand for Bible exposition. Um, Klingler, who speaks here, he's in the Bible ex department. I only talk to guys over there who are in the Bible exposition department because they're still pretty solid. But he goes on and, and uh, he says that uh, in his conversations with Daryl Bach, uh, Daryl Bach said that passages like Genesis 1 to 3 can be read in three ways, as literal history, as poetic history, or poetic fiction. Now, Wilkin points out, to read Genesis 1 through 3 as literal history means that Adam and Eve were historical persons created in precisely the way described by the text. This is, Wilkin says, this is my view, my view too. However, Wilkin says, my view is not mainstream, mainstream today. Most evangelical scholars today hold to option two, that Genesis 1 through 3 is poetic history. Reading Genesis 1 through 3 as poetic history means that Adam and Eve were historical persons, but the story of their creation and fall is told using poetic, that is, figurative language. There has to be a kernel of truth. That's a quote from Blomberg. Kernel of truth. How much is figurative and symbolic is up for debate. For example, D.A. Carson. Carson's brilliant, brilliantly wrong in a number of places. Uh, teaches up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in New Testament. Uh, Carson, in his book, The God Who Is There, didn't you read that a while back, Gene? 
Yeah, like we read that about 10 years ago. That's still in Connecticut. I, he, Carson says, I hold that the Genesis account is a mixed genre that feels like history and really does give us some historical particulars. Of course, he doesn't tell you which ones. At the same time, however, it is full of demonstrable symbolism. Sorting out what is symbolic and what is not is very difficult. And you see what guys like this in their, their little egghead ivory tower, tower miss is something can be literal and symbolic at the same time. Like the Ark of the Covenant. It was a literal box covered in literal gold that was symbolic of Jesus. Just because it's symbolic doesn't mean it's not literal or historical. There are a lot of things that happened in the Old Testament that are literal and historical, but they're also symbolic, like manna. Okay? So just so be careful when you read people and they say something is symbolic. Don't think that symbol means that, that, that it automatically denies literal historicity. And then he has a quote from another New Testament scholar, Craig Keener. And I'm, I'm just trying to give you an idea of where things are going. I mean, these guys would all claim to be hold to, Eve, to, to uh, uh, inerrancy. Keener writes, apart from some Israelite parables, nowhere else in the Bible do we read anything like this, colon, a talking serpent convinces man and wife to pluck a fruit that is knowledge. Not surprisingly, many biblical scholars, including evangelical biblical scholars, suspect some figurative language here. Yeah, but like I just said, figurative language doesn't exclude literal historicity. Uh, my question would be, we got literal history and poetic history, but history is history, right? Okay, what, what, what are we missing there? It can be poetic history, but that doesn't mean it's not telling real history, real people, real events. But that's how they play fast and loose with things. We, we, when we get in a society that loses truth, what falls apart is communication. And this is what happens in hermeneutics. Because words don't mean anything anymore when there's not an ultimate reference point. And we no longer can... That, this is what, we're battling this at where? Where else are we battling this? In trying to understand the Constitution as a living document. We can't interpret anything anymore. I mean, let's face it. We had a couple of people in, in, in military gear with, with, uh, with, with, with vests on and everything attack and with names that are clearly... Clearly Arab and, and Islamic. I mean, how many people here are named Farouk? How many people here know anybody named Farouk? Okay? We, we don't have Farouks in the Christian community. But the first thing you hear a lot of people said was, this is a Christian right-wing guy who just missed, missed the target of the Planned Parenthood. Uh, you know, things just don't mean anything anymore. Somebody yells, Allah Akbar, it's gotta be a Christian right-wing extremist. I mean, because words can, truth, is so flexible and so fluid, we no longer know what it means. It's, 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 and you can't talk about anything. So communication breaks down. And the more communication we seem to have today, the less anybody communicates anything related to truth. And they don't, they're afraid of truth. I had a conversation with a guy today, and he said, people in my generation, he's a young guy, people in my generation don't have any convictions. They don't want to have convictions. They don't believe there's truth. And if you believe something is true, you're being discriminatory against everybody else that doesn't believe that truth. So they don't want to believe in truth 
because that's going to be if you believe any one thing is true you're being judgmental just by believing one thing is true I, man i've been teaching that for 15 years that's where postmodernism leads you it destroys language this is why we have a president who can't come out and say it's islamic terrorism because words have real meaning and and he's trying to avoid that because he doesn't want to believe that words have real meaning anyway back to keener uh, Wilkins says, as Keener himself confirmed, many italics, many biblical scholars hold this view. Wilkins says, from my discussions with Bach, this also appears to be the majority position at Dallas Seminary and within the Evangelical Theological Society, close quote. Now, I think that's important to recognize this. Because we live in an era today when a lot of people who who work hard and live hard and, and they contribute to ministries like Dallas Seminary, and they don't know what's going on. And, and, and these seminaries are taking the hard-earned money of lovely, wonderful, conservative, fundamentalist Christians, and they're taking it, I believe this is under false pretenses. Because they've got men on their faculty who really don't, their interpretation of what that doctrinal statement means is not the interpretation of Lewis Berry Chafer or John Walvoord or Charles Ryrie, men like that. I had the great privilege in 1976 to come to Dallas Seminary my first semester. I sat in my second class, and the professor was Charles Ryrie. I thought, rapture can come now. I'm done. This is great. You know, he was about 50 years old, and he was always frail. He's still alive. He's 90. He was, I saw a picture I posted on Facebook. Somebody took a picture with him at a um, uh, Free Grace Alliance meeting in Dallas a couple of months ago. He still looks like a, a strong wind of a one-mile-an-hour will blow him into the next county. He was always that way. But what a mind, great mind. And in areas of dispensationalism and Free Grace and some others, uh, he's just tremendous. He's not so great on sanctification. He got away from Chafer, but but he's really great. He's really good in a lot of areas. And um, on bibliology, he was just tremendous. Okay, just to comment on another thing, setting up why we need to study inerrancy and infallibility, uh, he goes on to say, as I read uh, Blomberg's book, and We Trust the Bible, I was struck with how broadly he defined inerrancy. I suggested in my review that most New Testament scholars today, even those who claim to believe in inerrancy, consider the events of Genesis 1 through 3 as well as Jonah and Job to be historical only in a limited sense. In fact, he says the quotes from Carson and Keener cited above in my conversations with Bach only confirm that most evangelical scholars holding hold to viewing Genesis 1 through 3 as poetic history, and almost all think that taking much of Genesis 1 through 3 as poetic and figurative is a view that is at least discussable within the framework of inerrancy. In his book, Can We Still Believe the Bible?, uh, Blomberg says, if Farnell, Farnell graduated from Dallas with his Ph.D. in New Testament and wrote a great book with Bob Thomas dealing with how they have a lot of problems in the New Testament department on how they view Jesus. Blomberg said if Farnell Thomas, it's Bob Thomas who taught here uh, maybe eight or nine years ago, seven years ago at a Chafer conference, 
Geisler, Norm Geisler, Roach, I don't know who Roach is, were to be, if these four guys were to be consistent and chastise every older New Testament commentary whose views match those they demonize, Blomberg says, they would scarcely find a biblical scholar left in the evangelical theological society who would pass muster in their eyes. Now, if you're interested in this, you can Google the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and you can get a PDF and you can read it. It's, it's about four or five pages long. And there were between two and 300 scholars from different uh, institutions, different schools, who participated in crafting that document, and they all signed it. There were men like Dwight Pentecost at Dallas Seminary, Charles Ryrie. Uh, there were people like uh, 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 Elliot Johnson, who spoke here at Chafer Conference, Bob Thomas, Norm Geisler, many others. That was the benchmark of, of biblical inerrancy and infallibility in 1978. Well, here's the issue. I have That's still what I hold. That's what Bob Wilkin holds. We didn't move. Everybody else shifted left. And now we're the radical, hyper-inerrantist fringe. That's insane. But that's what's going on. Blomberg goes on to say, quote, but it cannot be stressed strongly enough that the Thomases and Geislers of the world do not speak for the vast majority of evangelicals and inerrantists around the globe. It's just insane. And then he quotes a statement from the president-elect of the Evangelical Theological Society, Dan Wallace. And at the end of this statement, Wallace says, if our starting point is embracing propositional truths about the nature of Scripture— rather than personally embracing Jesus Christ as our Lord and King, we'll be on that slippery slope and take a lot of folks down with us. The slippery slope is getting into uh, you know, uh, theological error. Because earlier he mentioned inerrancy as a peripheral doctrine. If our starting point is embracing propositional truths about the nature of Scripture, well, wait a minute. Scripture, how you view Scripture is a foundation of everything else. So how you view Scripture as the foundation, is, is the, that's the first domino. Ryrie has a great little book out called um, what, we, what We Should Know About Inerrancy, or What You Should Know About Inerrancy. And he starts off with this illustration where, you know, when he was a kid, he played dominoes. We all had this experience. We line up the dominoes, and we topple the first one, and everything else falls. How you understand the Bible is that first domino. When that falls, everything else falls. This idea that Dan Wallace states that if, if our starting point is embracing propositional truths, that is, that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God, rather than personally embracing Jesus, how do you know anything about Jesus without first embracing the Scripture as absolute truth? Answer that question. We don't ever know Jesus directly. We only know Jesus through the Word of God. We only know Jesus by reading the Scriptures and believing that what it says is true and that the words that are there are God's words. Otherwise, you're just making it up. This is how far we have fallen. This is why it's necessary that, that we go through a study on the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture is to come to understand what does the Scripture say about itself. 
And this is foundational because I never thought I would see this. Here you have a large number of men on the faculty at Dallas Seminary, according to this article, who don't believe in inerrancy the way it was defined by the faculty when I was a student there. That tells us something. That is a vast warning because that puts us more and more on the fringe. Father, thank you for this time that we have to study your word, to be reminded that you are the author of Scripture. These are your words reflecting your thoughts, and the very words of Scripture have been breathed out by you so that we can rely upon them, we can trust on them, that when, when, when life is difficult, we know that we have an absolute rock of the scripture to stand on, that it is true. And we don't have to say, well, maybe this was one of those verses that, that isn't quite true. Father, we thank you that we have the living word, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, that he is the living expression, the living communication of who you are, and that by trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal life. We pray that we might be challenged with what we've studied And it would cause us to think and investigate for ourselves more into the nature of your word that we may truly understand it and it may strengthen our faith and strengthen our understanding of our salvation and your plan for our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.